Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Anika Molesworth. Anika is a farmer, scientist, and storyteller who is passionate about ensuring the best possible future for our planet, the people, and the food on our plates. She is also the author of Our Sunprint Country, sharing her story and those of other farmers and food producers, discussing the issues at hand, and finding a way forward. Join us as we talk about Anika's journey and her passion for communicating agroecology and climate change awareness. Welcome, Anika. Thank you so much for joining me today on Steam Part. It is wonderful to be speaking to you today on agroecology and your work in bringing awareness to climate change. Thank you so much, Michelle, for having me on the show. So. You, know, you started out studying in agribusiness, but what brought you to that field to begin with? So my parents purchased our farm when I was 12 years old. And up until that point, I had a pretty normal urban upbringing in Melbourne. And they purchased the farm in far western New South Wales on beautiful Willacarley country. And so we set forth from Melbourne, drove the 1,000 kilometres north and when I got out here, I was I fell in love with the place because there are just horizons that go on forever, kangaroos bounding across the paddocks, canoes on the dam, horses. It was an incredible playground just waiting to be explored. Yeah, so when you ended up going to university, you did end up going into agriculture. So that must have had such an impact for you to want to pursue that as a tertiary level. Yeah, I was attracted to agriculture and I think it, it originally started, of course, on the farm here. But then when I finished year 12, I headed up to Queensland and I spent um, a good part of the year gillarooing, which is kind of like being a cowgirl. You know, you ride horses, you move cattle around, you do farm chores, cooking the food, fixing fences. And I just loved the experience both working with rural people but also having that chance to learn how food is produced and to be part of that amazing food system and so when I had finished that time in Queensland I thought I don't actually think I'm particularly well suited to go back to a lecture hall and learn from you know that environment I want to be based on a farm so I moved permanently onto my family's property out near Broken Hill and started studying my Bachelor of Science specialising in agribusiness via correspondence. That is absolutely wonderful. So where did you see yourself applying these skills after you finished your course? Well, originally when I, you know, set forth on agriculture and started studying it, I had always dreamed of living on a very remote, very large cattle station, you know, far away <laughs> in Australia. I love the quiet and solitude. I love, you know, being uh, alone in the, in the outback. Like this is, that's something that um, really does, you know, resonate with me. But as I progressed through my university studies, I learned more about the environmental challenges that we are facing as a globe. And I particularly became very interested and then concerned about climate change what it actually means to farmers now and what it means to the next generation of farmers like myself who are coming through. 
And so that's what really sort of sparked my interest in how climate change is impacting the food and farming system and what we need to do about it. That's amazing. So when you actually finish graduating and, you know, getting into that kind of space, is that why you started looking into all the international development programs in that area? I think as I was progressing through my studies and, you know, learning about the Australian setting, you know, it's it's such a fascinating and fantastic industry here in Australia. But I was also very conscious that how we farm here in Australia is not how other people farm in other parts of the world. And so I was curious to learn about food and farming systems in other countries. And during my master's, one of the electives was international experience. And I emailed pretty much everyone in the university and said, you know, I'm, I'm studying agriculture. I'm really interested in the climate. Do you know of like a project that's occurring <clears throat> internationally that I could be involved with? And I got a, a lot of, you know, non-responses and a lot of negative responses, but I got one positive response from a lecturer within the university who said, we've just started a project in Laos in Southeast Asia, and there's a spare desk and chair if you're willing to fill it. And I jumped at the opportunity and I supported myself to go over there. And I sat in a room surrounded by local colleagues um, who I could not communicate very well with because I am terrible at learning languages as much as I, you know, I try. I really do try, but <laughs> language is difficult. But I had the most fantastic, rewarding, meaningful experience working alongside, you know, the, the agricultural researchers, the extension officers, walking out into the fields with the farmers, inspecting their crops, understanding their systems and learning, you know, what what could be applied in Australia, like what, we, what knowledge could we bring back and what knowledge can we as Australians share also? What did you kind of um, learn or establish when you were there learning about their experience versus the way that we do things here? Well, I was working in Laos with small-scale subsistence farmers primarily, and their systems are very um, cyclical. You know, they have a few cattle, pigs, ducks, that, that livestock manure is then applied to their crops, you know, the maize that they are growing, um, a, a few vegetable plants like tomatoes and chilies, perhaps scattered in the, the rice paddies too. And when the harvest of those vegetable crops or rice crops is done, that, that stubble, that residue is then fed back to the livestock. And so they capture the resources and they use them incredibly well. They're sort of circular, closed, closed loop systems. And I found that fascinating, particularly because here in Australia, um, very much generalizing, we have more of linear systems where they're at one end, there's the input of water, of nutrients, of chemicals. And then at the other end, we have the production. We have the output of food or fibers. Um, but we're not very good at returning, um, you know, nutrients or resources back into the system or incorporating them well. And so I thought, you know, that's, that's something that we really could learn by looking at our, even our closest neighbors. Absolutely. So what sort of things might be preventing us from using those sorts of closed system 
well, closed systems in the kind of agriculture that we do have here? Uh, I think it's a few things, you know, it's, it's, it's cultural things that, you know, we've learned to farm in a particular way over the last few decades, centuries. And, you know, that that line of production has been encouraged equipments and, um, you know, advisors have been built up and established on that kind of system. So there are, you know, those cultural challenges, those structural challenges, um, you know, political challenges too. And so I think, you know, particularly as as people coming into the agricultural system or sector or people already within it, we should constantly be like questioning, are we doing things in the best possible way? You know, we should constantly be challenging the status quo and asking, can we be doing this better? And if we look at other examples around the country or around the world, what best practices could we learn and apply here at home? Absolutely. So is that sort of what led you to co-found the Farmers for Climate Action? So as I was going through university, I became very interested in climate change because the more I learned of it, I thought, wow, like this is the biggest problem we have ever faced as a, you know, as a global community. This is particularly uh, of concern for those who live and work closest with the natural world, the farmers, mm. they are producing people's food. I mean, this is a food, a global food security issue. This yeah. means every single person on the planet is involved. And I just couldn't see like a, a more large and complex issue as climate change, as it impacts the food system. And so I became fascinated by it and really wanted to learn as much as I could about the, the complex interrelationships that are involved in this challenge and this, and this system, but also looking at the solutions that are out there, the people who are already working on you know, tackling this problem. And so about five years ago or six years ago, a group of 30 farmers met in the Blue Mountains who shared similar concerns about climate change and what it meant for the farming system. And that meeting of a group of farmers was the beginning of Farmers for Climate Action, which fast forward to today, five or six years later, and we have over 6,500 farming members in our group. That's amazing. And yeah, they, they are the most incredible community of people who are looking at this problem directly in the eye going, I want to do something about it. Absolutely. Because, you know, the, it's such a massive part of the Australian economy and, you know, there is a lot of wastage. There is a lot of resource requirements around it. And, you know, all the things that have been happening naturally have been having such a massive impact on the industry and on the farmers who are having to deal with, you know, the side effects of all of this. So what sort of things does the organization do to kind of work towards solving these problems? So what Farmers for Climate Action does, it's, it's trying to change, you know, the conversation around climate change and how it's impacting the food system in a way that then actually sparks behavioral change and policy change so we can actually get on top of this problem. So ways it is doing that uh, in terms of building the capacity of farmers, you know, their knowledge and understanding of the science by running webinars, you know, connecting 
researchers with the people on the ground who are actually producing food, making sure that they have the best available uh, understanding science, know what the projections say, have an understanding of how they can adapt or mitigate emissions on farm. We're also working very closely with industry body and policy makers to make sure that we have proper strategies in place because we can't get on top of this problem if everyone's looking different directions and after different goals. We need to actually be working together in a collaborative uh, manner and actually having a very clearly defined path of where we're going and what we need to do, what steps we need to take. And obviously we need those strategies and targets to be the most ambitious, you know, absolutely in line with the science and not anything less than what (laughs) the experts recommend we do. Um, And then I guess the, the last key part of Farmers for Climate Action is trying to engage more people in these topics, in these very big complex topics, but actually bringing the farmer story front and centre of them, because this is, you know, this is the humanity that is caught in the climate crisis. We are the food producers who are, you know, working with the natural world. We're seeing it change before our eyes. That's impacting our homes, our businesses, our um, the, the social fabric of our rural communities. And we want to do something about it, but we can't do it alone. We need all people and all sectors engaged so we can get out of this problem together. That's brilliant. So because, you know, all of it is part of a massive supply chain. So how do we get, I guess, the consumers at the other end to be more aware or to be able to contribute to support the farmers? So often we think of climate, uh, farming, food as like separate fragmented systems that are like operating in isolation and it's a bizarre (laughs) um, you know perspective of the world that we've established for ourselves and we really need to understand though this is actually one and the same system and how we interact with our planet our climate our food uh, with people in general actually has a very real um, flow on effect to all the other components and so you know down in Bondi, walking into a supermarket shop, buying food, that food choice, what you select, the price you pay, the nutrient content of it, how you consume it, how much of it you consume, how much of it you waste, you scrape into the bin and send to landfill, that has a very real impact on the other end of the food system, the farmers who Mm. are actually in the paddock. So by encouraging people to support local food, um, you know, eat nutrient-dense foods, seasonal food, avoiding food that has been flown in from the other side of the planet and is wrapped in plastics, um, paying the fair price for food, you know, a price that actually fairly compensates the farmer so they have the financial resources and ability to, for instance, remove livestock when a drought hits to put solar panels on their roof because they want to be carbon neutral, like giving the farmer the actual financial resources to look after the land properly and their livestock is so important. So the decisions we make in the supermarket or when we open the fridge door has a very real flow and effect to how the farmer's operating in the paddock. Absolutely. And it's 
a lot of the time, you know, we are so separate from that because it's just there on the shelf and it's just, you know, we, we don't often look at, you know, where it comes from. You get, you get desensitized to all the things that make what we consume, you know, part of our community, part of our environment. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even if one puts aside like how we consume food for a moment, like how we waste food. I think here in Australia, we throw out one in four supermarket bags of food, which wow. is ridiculous because you're throwing out all the nutrients and fertilizers that were applied. You're throwing out the water from the river system or that was catched on the land. All that time, that labor, that energy that went into producing that food is ending up in landfill. And if food waste was a country, it would be the third largest emitter. So the simple act that we as individuals could take of not wasting food, of finishing our meal or over only like serving the you know, necessary portion size, that would have such a, a positive effect on actually dealing with this problem like climate change. And, you know, you, you see like the portion sizes are starting to get bigger these days. People are looking for value for money even if they're not consuming it, they want to know that the value is there, which contributes to all of that wastage. Yeah, exactly. And so I think we have to do a better job, you know, having conversations like this, helping people to understand that, you know, there is a, a whole story around that meal on your plate. Like it has come from, you know, a beautiful landscape. It has utilized natural resources and the farmer's time and labor and finances. And so the respect we show for that food on our plate, the way we celebrate it or the way we chuck it in the bin, you know, has very real world consequences and we have to do better. Absolutely. It's a thing that amongst a lot of other things we do take for granted these days. When people feel like overwhelmed by the problem or go like, oh, I don't know what to do. It's too big. It's complicated. It's costly. It's time consuming. Often it's actually not. It's actually like, you know, just don't waste your food. Like that's simple. <laughs> yeah. Just taking these little simple steps that, you know, we can incorporate into just our day to day without having to go out of our way to, yeah. you know, make these big sweeping changes. Yeah. Those small steps add up. Yeah. So there's a Japanese temple food preparation is, I don't know if you've heard about the way that they do it, but it's very conscientious and very thoughtful about the process from start to finish. When you're washing the food to prepare it, that water isn't wasted. You know, it's used for other purposes, goes back into the garden or, you know, other things. And all the way through, anything that's removed is thoughtfully discarded in a way that actually contributes back to the system. So from the start to finish to when you actually consume it, every step of the food preparation process is thoughtfully considered and respectful of the materials that you've used. And it's, it's very meditative, I suppose, for the person doing the preparation. But when they explain that to the people at the other end who are consuming the food and they talk about, this is the way it's done. This is the way we respect the materials. This is the way we respect our food, our supply, our environment. And, you know, that all that sort of thing, it seems a bit, you know, airy fairy, but it is, you know, you're thinking about your impact and about your consumption. And it's, you know, I actually find it very nice to think about it in that way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, if there was more of that kind of thinking and respect for 
what we have in front of us, the, the resources that we are using and asking of the planet, I think, you know, we'd be a, bit, a, a lot better off if we were more conscious. Absolutely. So with all the work that you're doing now, how do you balance your communication work and your work with the organization with running a farm? Because that's, that's a multiple jobs in itself. Yeah, um, I guess, well, on, on the farm, we're sort of, we're at an interesting point in our, in our farm journey, I think, where we're trying to figure out where we're going and what we need to be doing. So we're in sort of the sixth year of drought at the moment, and we've pretty much destocked our property, so we don't have sheep at the moment. And mm. we're having those conversations around the dinner table of, well, where do we see our future? Where are we going? Looking at the best available science, we know it's going to become hotter, it's going to become drier. How do we utilize that science now to make the best and most appropriate land management decisions going forward? Mm. So they're, they're interesting, although challenging conversations to have. But these are conversations that I also share in my communications work because we need to be asking ourselves, you know, wh wherever we live and whatever sector we're working in, you know, utilizing the best available science that is out there, what decisions do we need to make now to actually look after our communities, to look after our planets? Like, how do we tweak what we're doing so we actually have a, a beautiful, vibrant future to look forward to? Uh, yeah, definitely. So, you know, it, it's... You, you mentioned that you've destocked your farm, but as a livestock farmer, how does like that to me sounds like you're just not able to be an active farm, but how, how do farmers in a similar situation manage to keep afloat during these periods? Yeah. And it can be incredibly difficult for many farmers in there out there if they have a sole income stream. So if they are entirely dependent on raising cattle and selling those cattle for their income stream if you have a very difficult seasonal condition whether that's a flood a bushfire a drought that means you are left without your livestock well of course your your income stream dries up and that obviously puts on great financial stress you know mental stress community stress too because mm. A drought doesn't just affect a farmer in a rural community, it affects the kids at school, the teachers, the local cafe owner, um, mm. the local businesses. Everyone is impacted by these challenging environmental conditions that are becoming more frequent and more intense. A lot of farmers, though, out there for this reason uh, do have diversified income streams. So whether that's a diversification in their food and fibre production or in that they also have off-farm uh, income, such as their yeah. contractors who go out and do work, or whether you know one member of the family is a school teacher, um, or or something like that. So even in my own situation, in on our farm, so I live here with my husband and my parents. All four of us have uh, off-farm income streams as well. Yeah, you basically have no choice but to have multiple jobs. Absolutely. Yeah. That's tough. That, that, that's a really kind of difficult way to live when you know that you've got one very unstable or growingly unstable income stream. 
Yeah, in, indeed. And so I think, you know, as we look at the problem like climate change and understand what it means for farmers, we need to be asking those questions. Well, how do we actually build that resilience and also that financial resilience within our rural communities? And what does that actually look like? Yeah. So what does that actually look like? <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, these are the very good questions. And obviously, depending on region and community, they will be different solutions. But out here in Broken Hill, for instance, um, there's been a lot of investment into renewable energy projects, which have been really like celebrated with our community. Uh, there's a real um, push and interest in the arts and creativity side, you know, encouraging artists and filmmakers to come out here to the Broken Hill region and, you know, create creative works. And so I think it is that, yeah, looking, you know, outside the box and exploring the different options. For farmers, it might be looking at, you know, native foods as a different income stream. It might be looking at agri-tourism uh, as options emerge with, you know, biodiversity conservation payments or carbon sequestration payments. There could be options there. Um, so there are things out there, but we've got to get creative and we've got to, like, start thinking outside of the norm. Yeah, definitely. There's so many options, but having to figure out which ones suit each individual environment best. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even like at a, a farm level, like what we do on our farm will be different from what our neighbor does because every farmer has different labor resources, financial capacity, land system. You know, land systems are different, the soil type, the vegetation cover, mm. the water resources, and that directly affects what you can and can't do. Yes. So tell me more about agritourism. Like, how does that work and how does, and is that something that is, uh, I guess it is growing in popularity because you're starting to hear more about it, but what does that involve? So agritourism, I guess it's, you know, inviting people to come out to a farm to learn more about the agricultural system, the food and fiber production systems. So in instances, people might have like, have converted their shearers quarters into these like beautiful little boutique rooms <laughs> and people can come and stay and, you know, say they stayed in the shearers quarters and go for a horseback ride and see the livestock, understand the story. And so that's a, you know, a revenue stream for the farmer, inviting people to come out and have a taste of their life, um, understand yeah. more about the, the farming system. And I think it's also great for people, you know, urban-based people who, you know, feel disconnected from rural environments or the food system to experience it and to understand more about it. And so many farmers, I mean, they're passionate about what they do. They love these landscapes and their communities. And most of them would love to tell a yarn, you know, as long as you stand <laughs> and listen. As long as the um, ear's so there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I think there is, you know, potentially a beautiful marriage there between, you know, that connection between rural and urban communities. That is brilliant. So you've also mentioned that um, you've gotten, you know, thousands of farmers involved in the Farms of Climate Action, and that is so amazing to hear. But, you know, you, the stereotypes that you often hear about the ag community is that they are quite conservative or they're quite traditional in the way that they want to do things. And is hard to change minds. But with the number of people that you've mentioned involved, like 
clearly it's obvious that they are all keen you know to make sure that all of these things move forward with the times to make sure that they are able to keep up and to you know get ahead of these problems so was it difficult to get a lot of people on board it surprisingly wasn't um yeah which is surprising (laughs) (laughs) but yeah as, as you say i mean there is a lot of culture and heritage and pride in the farming community and a lot of farming businesses like they're multi-generational businesses and so you know people learn from their parents and grandparents so sometimes it is difficult to change what you're doing um especially also there are challenges with you know communication education and you know I'm I'm in Broken Hill like there there is no university here there's there's very few you know, research seminars ever given. Um, so the access to new information, new ideas, innovations lacks in a lot of Australia. And so that is also a reason why you don't see like very quick or radical change because there isn't that information or that communication stream here. So we need to do a better job of fixing that. And it is improving and probably COVID has increased the rate at which it has, you know, increased the speed because, uh, you know, telecommunications has improved. uh, Seminars and conferences are being run online. So people who are in the regions who previously haven't been able to fly to Sydney or Melbourne to attend can actually now just jump on the computer and attend. And I think that's absolutely brilliant and you know absolutely needed it has been needed for so long (laughs) um yes but i also think yes going back to your question about farmers for climate action and having six and a half thousand farmers it just goes to show that there are so many concerned people out there who who want to do more and for a farmer climate change is not some abstract you know academic notion or something for someone on the other side of the world or some future generation to worry about i can walk out the front door and see a drought in action like you know they have a very real understanding of what the implications are what it actually means to their businesses and their families and i think that's why we are seeing this growing voice coming out of rural australia and the farming community in particular because they get it um, Mm. and they know that we've got to change and they don't want to be left behind or seeing their farms damaged by a delayed response. Yeah. And, you know, because they're seeing it firsthand, you know, it's not, like you said, it's not an abstract concept. They're seeing, you know, their livestock and their, you know, farms affected by all this. They're seeing it in their books. They're seeing it and having to destock, to have to diversify and, you know, find all these other revenue streams to be able to survive. So, yeah, the people who tend to speak against it, it's like, well, you're not seeing it. You're clearly not seeing it from the perspective of these people who provide all this support for you to be able to have this perspective. Exactly. And I think we're at a very interesting time in, in, in politics, especially because of that point, because uh, parties that have traditionally said they represent farmers are you know the climate laggards when it actually comes to climate policy and so we're seeing a lot of the farming community go hang on like you know if you are truly representing us you have to be doing something about climate change in line with the science otherwise you're not representing us anymore 
Absolutely. And it's, it's great that we're being able, you're able to see that, you know, people are starting to speak out louder about this, to be able to say, we, we actually aren't being represented in the way that we need to be. Yeah. So much to do there. Not like it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's not a small problem and it's, yeah, having to, I guess, convince a lot of people to start mo making movements in a lot of these other areas because yeah, they don't see it. They're not experiencing it for themselves. Exactly. So I think like some of the, the major like barriers that we need to overcome, like we need to improve the way that we're communicating climate change and also the food and farming system in general, like making mm. people more aware of what's actually going on in the food system and how it actually impacts every single person who eats food. And then we need to also feel empowered as individuals to demand a change, to say, hang on, like the way we're treating our planet, this obviously is not working and it's, we can't sustain <laughs> this. We have to do something different. And that does mean we're going to have to change the policies. We're going to have to change our businesses and the way we do things. But it doesn't mean we have to sacrifice things. On the mm. contrary, if we act now, and you know are forward looking and are innovative we can actually reap you know a lot of benefits and opportunities that come with this transition and create a much more resilient vibrant healthy world than we have had in the past yes and you know by doing all of these things we're also starting to create our own close system the way that you're seeing with the farms overseas like being able to close that system for ourselves to be able to sustain it from end to end Exactly. And that's what we need. Yes. So you've also written a book, you know, Our Sunburnt Country, about, you know, all the farmers in your communities, in your extended communities. So what motivated you to write the book? Well, I've always had a love of writing and I've always loved the craft of like arranging words in certain orders and that creates you know a visual image in someone's mind and you know encourages them to think or do something and I think that's that's real magic so I had always thought you know one day I'd love to write a book and I've always had notepads you know with scribbles in them of what I would write about and how I would tell the story but you know life is busy and I always had just put it on hold and it wasn't until the start of 2020 when COVID really escalated here in Australia and my calendar of activities was suddenly wiped clean <laughs> that I thought, okay, well, <laughs> here's an opportunity to <laughs> focus on the book. And so I sat on the bedroom floor. I laid out sheets of paper. What did I want to write about? Like, what were the themes? How would I, you know, draw out emotion? Why, why do I feel so connected with this issue, but someone, you know, living in Sydney doesn't feel as connected? And how could I help them feel connected in the way that I do that would actually spur them to act? How can I tell such a, a complex, global, at time daunting challenge in a way that is, you know, doable, solvable, personal? Um, and at times in the, the writing experience, I was like, you know, full of energy and enthusiasm and thought, yes, like, this is going to be amazing. And then the next day I'd be like, oh my gosh, like, what have I got myself into? <laughs> <laughs> the, 
this is the biggest challenge the world has ever faced. What am I doing trying <laughs> to write a book on it? <laughs> um, so I absolutely rolled the roller coaster of self-doubt and <laughs> <laughs> imposter syndrome. But I got there in the end. Uh, I worked with a great publishing house who was able to, you know, critique my work, provide some really good feedback on it. So it went through a lot of revision backwards and forwards. You know, if something wasn't necessary for the audience, you know, highlighted it and cut it out. And one had to be brutal, which at times is very difficult when you put a lot of work in writing. Yes. Um, but then, yes, at the end of August this year, 31st of August, my book hit the shelves. It was published. And I'm, I'm so proud now that I can walk into a bookshop and, and see my little book sitting on, on the shelf. <laughs> oh, congratulations. And it's had such wonderful reviews with a lot of people talking about how, you know, you're talking about the problem, but you're able to convey it in such a way that just fills them with positivity about the fact that we can affect the change, that we can make a difference. I think that's the, the kind of thinking that we need. It's not dismissing or downplaying the science. It's absolutely mm. fronting up to what the science says and acknowledging it, but then using that wealth of evidence to take us forward and to realise like what opportunities are just out there within our grasp if we had the will and the courage to seek them out. Yes, because it's not, it's not just doom and gloom. Yes, the problem is serious, but you know, it is possible to make a way forward. It is possible to find a path to you know, resolving some of the problems that we're experiencing right now. Exactly. And so in my book, I talk about you know, having that vision in our minds of the world we want to create, that we should be creative, we should be imaginative, we should you know, challenge the status quo um, and ask better questions. You know, if we, if we just sit back and wait for someone else to do something, it's, it's never going to happen and the system's never going to change. So we really need to take it upon ourselves to, like, imagine greater and then actually demand that that actually happens. Yes, that, that's very important because, you know, it's so easy to just take that step and to say, you know, it's too big for me. But, yep. you know, you can still ask for what you need you can still ask for what needs to happen exactly and there are so many things that we can all do in in our lives and this is where like it becomes really exciting and hopeful i think is that there is an abundance of solutions whether one's looking at you know your energy consumption um you know and moving your your home your business your kids school onto renewable energies or whether it's looking at the way you transport yourself or your goods um, looking at electric vehicles or you know public transport, better public transport systems, whether it's in the food system and how you're consuming food, whether it's in you know fashion and the the purchase of material goods, like there's things that we can do in every element of our lives that could be better. And yes, at times they seem small and insignificant, but if we all take those little steps forward, then that, you know, those little ripples, that becomes the tidal wave of change that we actually need. Yeah. And it's like the thing that people are saying, like, you don't, your solution does not have to be perfect. It's better to have a lot of people doing it imperfectly than to have a few people doing it perfectly. Absolutely. Yeah. Ooh, very inspirational. <laughs> okay. So it's probably a good time to start moving to some of the other questions I wanted to ask you about, you know, 
motivations and, you know, a bit more personal stuff. So mm-hmm. what sort of hobby or interest do you have that is most unrelated to your field of work? I mean, we've touched on writing. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a funny one because I, <laughs> I, I really like love what I do so much that I, I almost don't consider it work. Like it is, it's a vocation, it's a passion. And so whether I'm out in the paddock, like bending down, looking at the wildflowers or collecting seeds or, um, you know, like I love being creative I love like sketching and painting and writing like I'm always then describing the the natural world or the farmers and so I'm I'm so deeply embedded in you know the natural world and the farming system and I find it so fascinating that I actually then find it very difficult to um yeah take it apart and go okay that's work and that's hobby because I think it's sort of one and the same almost (laughs) yeah it's just so there's so many ways that it's beautiful to you in different parts of your life yeah exactly oh that's that's amazing like I think that's the dream right to be able to have that vocation that is also your passion (laughs) I hope so yeah I, I sometimes feel awkward when someone says like what's your hobby and I'm like Mm, reading and writing about climate change and <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's also my work but <laughs> it does make you feel like a workaholic but you, you can see why you know it's it's such a big part of who you are part of what you care yeah. about that you know it doesn't matter what you're doing anyway it's all part of the same thing part of the same objective exactly, exactly. Yeah. okay and which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you Oh, okay. It was probably a a book. It's called <laughs> um, Mick's Mammoth, and Mick was a caveman, and he befriended a mammoth. And this baby mammoth followed him around the forest, and they went on all these amazing adventures together. And it's it's a poem, and I remember learning the poem with my mom and like flipping through the most beautiful illustrations of this baby mammoth and this you know really little cave boy like going on these adventures. Um, so I think that book had an effect on me because it was about you know being outdoors with wildlife, going on adventures, but it was also the poetry and the description of being outdoors, having these adventures. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Such a lovely thing. (laughs) Yeah. And what advice would you give someone who'd like to do what you do and what advice should they ignore? I guess have conviction for your cause. Like if there is something that you are really passionate about and you think needs to change or could be improved, like don't let anyone shake you. Don't let anyone tell you that your passion is not worthy or deserving, like whatever field or interested in, like follow it, like follow where your heart is. Um, and I guess, yeah, to yeah, ignore the, the critics out there who tell you that, <laughs> you know, that issue isn't worthy of your attention, because if you reckon it is, then my God, stick to your guns and yeah, walk by that person. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, having conviction for that is it's a good way to start. <laughs> exactly. I mean, especially in the climate change space, you know, especially when I was sort of more starting out in the space a, a decade ago, there were a lot of people who like 
said, you know, it's rubbish. Like, don't spend your time there. Like, do something different. Um, you know, people who didn't believe that it was as important as I believed. And if I had listened to those people and sat down and be quiet and pursued something else, I would be very sad and disappointed in myself. Mm. But I truly believed what I was researching, what I was interested in was important. And I still absolutely believe that to this day. And so I will continue working in this space for, you know, as long as I can. And, you know, it's a needed space and it's a necessary, you know, effort to be putting a lot of energy into. Yeah. And not, not just because, you know, in Australia, ag is such a massive part of the industry, but just because of this greater impact globally. Yep, exactly. Yep. Oh, very wonderful. And yeah, you've been doing such amazing work. I've been, it's been absolutely wonderful speaking with you all about your passion for this field. And you, know, you can definitely see and feel how much you feel for this entire space. And not just because you know, it impacts you directly, but just because you can see how it impacts everyone else. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for speaking with you today, Anika. It's been wonderful, you know, listening to you talk about all these wonderful issues. So if people would like to learn more about what you do and all of these issues, where can they go? So I'm pretty active on most of the social media channels. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. I also have a website, which I post videos up on. But also, if people are really interested in the topic of climate change and how it's impacting um, farmers and want to be more involved in these conversations, head along to Farmers for Climate Action because they also have a terrific website, great social media content, and they often run webinars which are free for anyone to attend. And you can learn more about the challenges and also the solutions that are out there. Oh, absolutely. And I saw that, you know, you've, you've had these conversations with scientists and you have these podcasts with the farmers and it's wonderful you know, to connect both sides and sharing that with people. Yeah, it really is. It's an amazing community out there and I'm so proud to be part of it. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you again so much for speaking with me today. It's been absolutely fantastic and I hope you have an amazing day. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Michelle, for having me on the show. Thanks. Many of us can feel distanced from the issues of climate change and the agricultural industry that supports our society. But it's important to recognise the impact that all of this has on them and how it in turn impacts our local and global communities. To learn more about Nika and what we discuss in the show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steam Powered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also find out more about Anika and her work on her website and social media, and about Farmers for Climate Action at farmersforclimateaction.org.au, the links for which will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, please let me know. Subscribe to this channel, leave a comment below, and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for watching. <laughs>